Now we come to what we trust to be the last of our studies upon the Psalter, the book of Psalms at this time. You will remember that last time we <coughs> spoke on this uh, on the book of Psalms we dealt in the whole evening with the key to the book you remember for some I think <coughs> three evenings we have dealt with a general introduction to the Psalter and we have dealt with many of the uh, technical aspects the compilation of the Psalter and the authorship of the Psalms and so on and the literary aspects and the musical aspects and the psalm titles and so on. And last time, if I remember rightly, we dealt with the spiritual aspect of the psalms. What was the meaning, really, or what is the key to the Psalter? And you remember that we discovered a very, very simple thing. I don't think it needs uh, a very thorough reading of the psalms to discover what is the key to the Psalter. It is worship. The word means, the Hebrew word means uh, praises. Um, it's quite, quite a simple word. Uh, no real difficulty is attached to uh, a discovery of the key. Now, <clears throat> we can't really go over it, although it's very necessary for you to remember what we said um, the last Friday evening uh, on this. Um, I can only just simply remind you that we looked at it from different angles. We pointed out to you that um, it was remar a remarkable fact that the book that occupies the central part of the Bible <coughs> and something that is the equivalent of 150 chapters should have as its one theme, the theme of worship. And you remember I asked you have we have we sufficiently realized that worship is the key to our own being our own well-being as well as to our own actual being um, not just a question of when we're in the mood or when we feel like worshiping because that only reveals that we've got an entirely erroneous idea of worship uh, the 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 thing that the Psalter reveals is this worship is not something that is a thank you, Lord, uh, for a blessing, or thank you, Lord, for a provision. Um, the Psalter reveals that worship is a character, and this character is an inward thing, and it is produced by the Holy Spirit by very deep uh, experiences. We are led by the Holy Spirit into deep and very real experiences which produce a kind of character which can only be described as worship. And it doesn't matter where you look in this Psalter, wherever you look in the book of Psalms, you will find every kind of experience described. You find, as we looked last time, Psalm 88, and you find a man in the deepest gloom possible. He can hardly raise his head, he's in such deep gloom, and yet it's the expression of worship. He is so depressed that he feels everything is completely at an end. And he doesn't even say, Hope thou in God, for I shall yet praise the Lord. His spirit can't even uh, rise to that. And yet it's worship. It's worship because it displays a relationship to the Lord. 
that even in his deepest depression, he's pouring the whole thing out to the Lord. He's mentioning the Lord by name. He's not rebelling. He's not fighting the Lord. He's not, as it were, murmuring against the Lord. He's not tempting the Lord. He's pouring out all his wine and his gloom and his depression to the Lord. And so we could, we could go on. But we remember we did mention, we went through quite a number of psalms, a great range of human experience, joy and sorrow and light and darkness, and a consciousness of union with the Lord, and a consciousness of being forsaken of the Lord, grief and gaiety, all these different things we find in the psalms. Some psalms of a tremendous elation, tremendous jubilation, exultation trial. When someone like a lark, they've got right up into the heavenlies and, and are just singing their heart out so that you think they'll, they'll burst. If you've ever heard a lark like that. Well, you've just wondered how a little bird like that can make such a, such a beautiful uh, melody that you think it must, must kill itself. Some of the psalms are like that. They've got so high and so into pure heavenly air that you just think it's, it's impossible for a human being to pour forth such beauty um, in every way, such worship, such praise. It doesn't seem to belong to us. It seems to us that it must belong to him. And yet there are times in human experience when somehow we're released from the restricting things and we can soar away. Uh, and at such times we, we like Mary, we like her great song, or Hannah's great song, <laughs> or Elizabeth's great song, Somehow or other, we're just carried away and, and uh, real worship suddenly pours out of our, of our hearts in a way that perhaps we do not usually experience. Well, we've looked at all those things and we've also seen that the Lord is the head and the heart of, the, of every psalm. Um, and that is a key to worship. When people cannot worship the Lord, when their lives are um, somehow or other bereft of real worship, it is nearly always a question of the Lordship of Christ. Somewhere or other, that person's got an argument with the Lord. They're not bowing the knee to the Lord Jesus on Sunday. And therefore, there's no worship, only moaning. People who moan all the time have not bowed the knee to the Lord Jesus, really, because they're murmuring, you see. They've got a complaint. And you all know how we get round something. When we know something we should do, we usually all put up a kind of um, facade. And how we often do it is by criticising. When we know someone is right and we are in the wrong, we often have a kind of little self-defense mechanism which immediately springs into action and we start to criticize them. Well, oh, well, we say, so-and-so is so stupid. Or it's all right for so-and-so. They're, they can do this, they can do that. They're or they've built that way, or something else. But we've got a little self-defense mechanism that wipes them off the slate, as it were. Uh, they're not to be uh, counted. And many of us, without knowing it, have the same little self-defense mechanism when it comes to the Lord. We know that he is asking something. We know he's putting his finger on something. And so we have a little self-defense mechanism that springs into action straight away. And we say, oh, what's the good of that? The Lord doesn't understand me. He doesn't realize I can't rise to such heights. It's no good, this or that or the other, and so on. But you see, really, it's a question of the Lordship of Christ. And when he is Lord, and when he is heart of our life, then we worship the Lord. It doesn't mean we're always up there 
And it doesn't mean to say that we're always full of the most wonderful melody. Uh, and so as some people seem to think uh, uh, is worship. Sometimes there will be days of sorrow, sometimes there will be times of deep darkness, sometimes there will be times when we think we're forsaken of the Lord, when he seems to have hidden himself from us, and so on. But they can be worshipped. That can be worshipped. Indeed, such times can, in the most wonderful way, produce more beauty for the Lord and something more satisfying to the Lord than all those other times of great elation. You know, sometimes in music, it is the sometimes when in something we come to some more somber notes, some more quiet and deeper notes, we wouldn't like it all the time, but somehow or other those, those parts, those phases, to us are the most beautiful of all. Uh, they are flung into relief, of course, by, by the way. And so it is with the Lord when he deals with us. Somehow some of the, uh, the saints, the divines of the last century, they used to look upon us like, as harps. Spurgeon did particularly. He was always talking about us uh, as if we were a kind of harp, that the Lord was playing. And uh, so at different times and in different conditions and in different experiences, a different kind of melody was being produced by the Holy Spirit in our lives. Well, it's all found here, and we've discovered, I believe, too, that you can't center on experience. If you center on experience, you lose worship. The remarkable fact that the whole Psalter, as soon as you, uh, an experience is mentioned, a blessing, it leads you straight to the Lord. And the psalmist is very quick to, to find that the blessing is an avenue to the Lord. As well as so many of us, we get an experience, or then we start to look at the experience. And, and then we get into that terrible habit that we can't praise the Lord if we haven't got a blessing. You know those people? Um, can't possibly uh, mouth a few words of praise to the Lord because somehow they haven't had a, a big blessing uh, or something hasn't happened, you know, that they feel. Uh, if there's a flash of light from heaven and a sudden wonderful feeling, then they'll praise the Lord. But if not, they couldn't, you see, because it wouldn't be real, they think. <coughs> and that's all a false basis. <coughs> the whole thing is a false basis. That's not worship at all. That's because you and I have got into the habit of thinking that experiences are the Lord, and that if we don't have those experiences and blessings, then we can't praise the Lord. It's not praise. And we have to learn that from the sort of time. Now, if I remember rightly, the last time we spoke on the Psalter, we ended on the question of the Messianic prophecies, those wonderful <coughs> prophecies in the Psalms, which suddenly you find a psalmist is talking about himself. And he's talking about his sin. And he's talking about iniquity inside of himself. And then all of a sudden, he flies, as it were, into the heavenlies, and suddenly he, he speaks words that can only portray the Lord Jesus. And again and again you get this strange paradox in one psalm, in one context. One moment it is so obviously a sinful man and the next moment it is a man portraying or foreshadowing, prefiguring the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And this has taught me at any rate and I trust it will teach you a great lesson that you see psalmists sometimes were so identified with the Lord Jesus, they were so absolutely 
committed to him that there were times when they they most beautifully portrayed him. They didn't know it, but they were actually prefiguring and portraying the Lord Jesus. Well, that shows you something about this question of the Lordship of Christ and the Lord being our hearts. He had become so much the very meaning of life to these people uh, that the Lord was able to make them the very foreshadowing of his own life and death and resurrection. Well, now, the, this evening, we must move on from there. And the thing I want to make a point of this evening is this, that the, the Psalms teach us one very wonderful thing indeed. They teach us that once we learn what real worship is, all other kinds of things begin to operate. Now, I don't know how to explain this or how to illustrate it, really, because it would be a study in itself. But, you know, I could take you to psalm after psalm and just show you how suddenly the psalmist begins by praising the Lord and then all of a sudden he's away. That's the only way we can explain He's off. He's away. And suddenly we find he's teaching people. He says, for instance, Psalm 34, he speaks, he praises the Lord for what he is. And then he says to everyone else, you come and praise the Lord with me for what he is. And then all of a sudden he says, now then, come my children. I will instruct you. And before we know what he, what's he, what is he doing? He's instructing them in the ways of the Lord. He's teaching them. And so we find all kinds of things. For instance, we find in another psalm that perhaps David is praising the Lord with all his heart, and then all of a sudden he starts to testify. And he says, you know, I, I was like this, and I was like that, and I was like the other, and suddenly the Lord's lifted me out of it all. And then another place we find that the psalmist is, is worshipping the Lord for something. He's expressing his worship. And then all of a sudden he prophesies something. Now many of the psalms are prophetical. They prophesied events that took place. Now what does this teach us? It teaches us a very simple elementary fact. It is simply this. That when you and I have understood what worship is, and have started, have been led by the Holy Spirit into a life of real worship, then all kinds of other things start to happen. For instance, all this business about <coughs> gifts, all this business about ministries. Some people often say, you know, I don't know, I seem so useless. And they say, why doesn't the Lord bring a ministry out of me? Um, I understand from the scripture that everyone's got a gift. There's no member of the body who hasn't got one gift. And many have many more than one gift of the Holy Spirit. Well, then they say, why haven't I got a gift? Why isn't it functioning? Well, you see, perhaps the Lord hasn't yet been able to lead you to worship. You see, the Lord puts first things first. Now, listen very carefully to what I'm going to say. There is a realm of Christianity in which you can work and work and work and work for the Lord. And the Lord will bless your work, and the Lord will take up your work, and there will be a lot done through your work. But you know, there, be very, there might be very little worship. I know many dear servants of God, servants of God, that I know who have been blessed of the Lord. They don't know much about real worship, you know. Some of you 
uh, they, would be, they would be thrilled to listen to you praise the Lord. Because they would say, well, I just can't praise the Lord like that. And yet they've been used to the Lord to do great things <coughs> in different parts of... Now, what are, we trying, what are we getting at? We're getting at one very simple fact. When you come onto church ground, when you come into, uh, shall we say, into a knowledge of, of the church, Christ as the church, the Lord, you know, is working for eternity. And he always, you find a completely different set of principles are at work. And the Lord will never depart from those principles. And one of the first things is worship. Worship. Now listen, Paul says in, in Romans 12, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, present your bodies, your bodies, a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your spiritually intelligent worship. But what does he go on to say? He goes on to talk about, now he says, you know, the body has many members, and all the members are one body. And he says, they've all got different gifts. And then he begins to go on about prophecy and teaching and hospitality and generosity in giving and all the other different gifts that there are. But do you see what he puts first? First he puts worship. Then he comes to the question of the body all starting to function. Everything functions when worship is put first. First a living sacrifice, which is spiritual worship, which is spiritually intelligent worship. It's not that sudden emotional thing. It's spiritually intelligent worship. You weighed the cost. You understand what it means. You have abandoned your right to your life. You've abandoned yourself to the Lord as a living sacrifice. When that happens, worship starts. And when worship starts, ministry starts. And if you don't put it in that order, you'll never get anything. Now listen, there are many, many New Testament groups up and down this country and on the continent. And they can't for the life of them think why the Lord doesn't seem to be in charge and why the Lord doesn't seem to lead them on. The simple point is this. They are trying to set up the church without the foundation and they're trying to operate the ministries without the essential primary things. The first thing is worship. The Lord is not interested in having little groups with ministry. Who on earth got this idea? I don't know. The Lord is interested in people who worship him. He doesn't want people to get up on a platform and just hold everyone sort of uh, for hours while they uh, rave and rant. He doesn't even want beautiful ministry in spiritual doctrine. He doesn't want that. What is ministry? Are we all here to listen always? Are we all here just so that we might have, have a little word? And if there isn't a bit of ministry, then it's not worthwhile, so we won't come. What is the point? The point is really that ministry is only a means to an end. What is the means to? What is it a means to? It is a means to building us up. It is a means to perfecting us, fusing us together and making us grow up into Christ. But what is the end? Really, what is the end? It is union with Christ and union with each other. One common life with, the, with God the Father, 
God the Son, God the Spirit, and with each other. We are all in each other. Do you understand? We are one uh, fused unity. Well, you see, if we could only get hold of that simple point and get it clearly, we should, be at, we should have got to the point of an understanding. Oh, so many people seem to think the church is just a New Testament pattern. You set it up, you have the Lord's table, you have elders, you have deacons, you have ministry, uh, and you must have, no, you mustn't have one person <coughs> ministering, you must have at least two, and then <coughs> it's all right, you see, that's New Testament pattern. And when you've got all that, that's all all right. And then what happens? You get all the quarreling and the fighting and the division over who should be this and who should be that and whether someone's got a ministry or hasn't got a ministry. This person says he hasn't and that one says he has and he says he's got a ministry and so it goes on. All this. And what does the Lord get out of it all? It's nothing at all. Is that the church? That's putting, to put it rather colloquially and crudely, that's putting the cart before the horse. If first we have what, what we call worship, if we understand what worship is, and we're led into to, to, to real worship, then all other kinds of things begin to blossom. And the Psalms beautifully express this. Now, I cannot spend any more time on this, but what I suggest is that you go away and read the Psalms, and read it with all these things in your mind. See where you can, if you can, if you can underline, um, if you can sort of find out, well, what is the psalmist doing here? He was praising a few minutes ago, because I'm not suggesting we should all do this in the time of praise. Uh, I'm just saying that this is something that, uh, that we find in the book of Psalms, which is very wonderful. You see, suddenly we find someone's praising the Lord, but next minute they're teaching. Next minute they're testifying. Next minute they're prophesying. But it's service. You see, and all this service comes out of worship. There's one very, very wonderful uh, psalm, you know, which speaks of the psalms being a terrible state. He doesn't know what to do or where to turn. And you know, the Lord in the end teaches him one thing. He says, if you will only offer to me the sacrifice of thanksgiving, you will prepare for me a way to show you my salvation. And that's the key to it. He was just simply saying, you know, if you don't, I can't do anything. It's like Jericho. You can walk round and round the walls. You can parade round and round. But until there is that note of praise, faith and praise, worship, the walls don't fall down. The Lord has said, it's like Jehoshaphat's army. He put the singers in front. You've never heard of an army going out to battle before, have you, with a choir uh, in the vanguard to lead it into battle. That's what Jehoshaphat did. He put the singers in front because he had learned a secret, that worship is business. Worship is work. Worship is war with the Lord. And you see, if the enemy can only get us all with our fists up, armed to the teeth spiritually, all trying to fight the devil, and all sort of, oh, no worship at all, anywhere there's no worship at all, well, the devil just thinks this is just blown, <coughs> and they'll all fall over. There'll be no, there'll be no uh, holding the enemy back. But you see, really, when we know what it is to worship the Lord, then everything else takes place. Do we understand that? Well, that's what we learn anyway from uh, the uh, Psalms. You see, there's a very, very wonderful little lesson here that may be of help to some of you. What they went through, they had no idea, but what they went through and the way they reacted to what they went through, what they were permitted to pass through, 
has been of encouragement and instruction and comfort to countless millions down to ages. And these folk knew nothing about no well knew nothing about it. They never knew when they were going through that time, trying time, that thousands and thousands and thousands of people were going to draw from their common, in many cases quite ordinary experience, but deeply trying experience, uh, they were going to draw such help. But they did. And you know, in a small way, that's just what happens when you and I learn to worship. We become a source of instruction and comfort and encouragement to one another. You all know what it is to touch a life that's bereft of worship. They might have an awful lot of knowledge and everything else, but they can't help you. They're no encouragement. They're no comfort. But when you touch someone who knows what worship is, they know what it is to be a living sacrifice. You are all the time, whatever the condition of that person, whatever's happening to them, you're touching something that is to you a continual source of comfort, of encouragement, and of, of instruction. And I do believe that there will come a day when we shall discover that forever it will be recorded. And now there are some other things we would also like to make note of before we leave this matter of the key to the Psalter. I would like you also to note that many psalms, speaking in the singular, are speaking of all four, the whole nation. Now this is a, a thing, a point that perhaps we need to make. I think most of you... Uh, ought to be able to see this anyway. But it's the most remarkable fact. It's the method that is not unknown to the Bible and it is not unknown to the ancient East. That a whole nation is spoken of in the singular. The Lord referred to um, his people when he sent Moses to Pharaoh as let my son go. He spoke of the nation as a person, one person. Now, the Psalms are very fond of doing this, and indeed it's caused a lot of controversy, for many scholars are not ever quite sure whether the I is collective or whether it is truly personal. And some scholars have swung too far to one side and decided that, that there's very little that's really personal uh, in the Psalter at all. Uh, but I think we'd be able to distinguish. Let's just look at one or two um, obvious uh, examples. Psalm 129 is one of the best examples. Psalm 129. Many a times they afflicted me, singular, from my youth up. Let Israel now say, many a time have they afflicted me from my youth up, yet they have not prevailed against them. The plough ploughed upon my back. They made long their furrows. Okay. That's a collective singular. Now, look at Psalm 44. There's another example. Thou art my king, O God. Verse 4. Thou art my king, O God. Not our king. Thou art my king, O God. Command deliverance for Jacob. And then verse 6. For I will not trust in my bow, neither shall my sword save me. Verse 15. <coughs> All the day long is my dishonor before me, and the shame of my face hath covered me. And then one more example of this is Psalm 118, which is perhaps a very 
remarkable one. Psalm 118 and verse 2. Let Israel now say that his loving kindness endureth forever. Now, verse 5. Out of my distress I called upon the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me in a large place. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do unto me? The Lord is on my side among them that help me. Therefore shall I see my desire upon them that hate me. And then verse 10. All nations compassed me about. In the name of the Lord, I will cut them off. They compassed me about. Yea, they compassed me about. In the name of the Lord, I will cut them off. They compassed me about like bees. They're quenched as the fire of thorns. In the name of the Lord, I will cut them off. Thou didst thrust sore at me that I might fall, but the Lord helped me, and so on. See, that's I and my, and yet it's speaking of a whole nation. Now, what does this teach us? Because this is a very common feature in the Psalms, particularly of the Psalms of later date. It became more and more common that the whole nation was symbolized in one person. Isaiah, of course, spoke of the whole of the people of God as the servant of the Lord. The servant of the Lord. Of course, it was personified and summed up in the Lord Jesus. But you see, you, do you not see that, that even Isaiah, it's perfectly true to say that he was prophesying of the Lord Jesus, but he was not only prophesying of the Lord Jesus personally. You see, in the most wonderful way here, we discover a sense of the essentially corporate nature of worship. And it's everywhere in, in, in the Psalms. It needs all the members of the body to satisfy the Lord. You and I just can't satisfy the Lord alone. It may, it may humble us <clears throat> to recognize that. But I can't satisfy the Lord alone. I need all of you. It's a wonderful thing for me to pour out my worship to the Lord, privately and personally. But what does it mean when the Lord Jesus continually said, ask everything in the name, do everything in the name? Did he mean what it is I've generally understood, that you just sort of tag the name of the Lord onto your personal private devotions? He didn't mean that at all. If you look back into Scripture, you will always find that the name of the Lord was always connected with a place. In the New Testament, the name of the Lord is always connected with the body of the Lord Jesus. So when you say at the end of your prayer, in the name of Christ, or in the name of the Lord Jesus, you are simply saying, Lord, ratify this because I'm a member of the body. That's all. Not because I am Lance Lambert. And therefore, Lord, you must answer me personally, because I demand. That kind of thing. No, not at all. It's because I'm a member of the body, Lord. My prayer is not personal. Lord, hear my prayer in the context of the body. Hear my prayer in the context of the rest of the family of God. Don't just answer me personally at the loss of the rest of the body. Answer me as it will best suit the, or, the whole. Do you see? All. Now that's why some of your prayers aren't answered. Because you prayed them in the name of Christ. And it is not to the interests of the whole family. 
that you possibly could personally benefit in some way. You see what I mean? The Lord may have given me a thorn in the flesh. He may have given you a thorn in the flesh. I don't know. Um, you see, he may have given you the... You may say, Lord, 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 in the name of Christ, take away this thorn. The Father says to his son, I'm so glad he's prayed in the name. Because I won't do it. Because I've given him and I've given them that thorn in the flesh in order that the rest of the body might benefit. So you understand what it means uh, to this corporate sense all the time. Of course, the devil's done a terrible work um, of uh, breaking us all up into pieces. And of course, now it's the basis of democracy and the basis, particularly the basis of Western life. Um, the essentially sacred uh, nature of the individual, which is all very right and good. But you see, it's all perverted because in actual fact, God never sees us just as individuals. He sees us as precious, precious individuals, but part of a family. Just in the same way that a mother and a father wouldn't look upon each child as something so separate that they cut them off from the rest. They look upon them as one family, their family. So the father looks upon us as his family. All the same flesh and blood, all the same nature, all... Uh, living in the same life and because of the same life. So you see, it's a wonderful thing when you start to see this. Um, this, this that comes out in the Psalter, the essentially corporate nature of worship. Uh, that's why there's such value in worship when we're together. There's tremendous value in worship when we're alone, especially when we see that we don't, we're not just the church when we're like this, you know. Some people have got an idea that we're only the church when we sit in, in, in this kind of world uh, together. We're the church wherever we go, whatever we do. We are the church, what it means. We have a ministry uh, wherever we are. But when we come together, we assemble together, then there's something very precious because we're, we're all together. And instead of our contribution being out to the world and in our homes and offices and everywhere else, we're all collected together so that our contribution can go up to the Lord together. The assembling of ourselves together. And that's where we get all the strength to go out to function as the church in our different scattered places of work uh, and uh, uh, our different homes. Well, you see, this is all beautifully summed up in the book of Revelation. Do you know, I, I'd like you all to go away and, and do something um, because I haven't really had the time this week to do what I wanted to do. I wanted to search right through the book of Revelation and to discover whether I could find any really, essentially, private worship in heaven. I know that there was one or two places when John fell down at the foot of an angel and said he would worship him, and the angel said, no, no, you mustn't worship me. You worship me. I, I'm, I'm one of your fellow servants. But is there anywhere that you can find, and you go away and think about it and search and come and tell me, is there anywhere you can discover where there is essentially private worship in heaven? I don't think so. Everywhere I can remember, and every instance that comes to my mind, the book of Revelation speaks of an innumerable multitude, that the sound of their voices is like the, the sound of many waters. 
some things are tremendous. And you know the whole of heaven's like that, you see. It's all the body, all the redeemed, all the ransomed, pouring out that same worship uh, together. Um, that, well, I don't know, as I've often said, I don't think it means that we're going to spend all our days uh, sort of standing around singing, uh, but I believe it's a symbol, it's a picture of something, something very wonderful. Heaven, every picture we have of heaven, is the picture of an innumerable company that are worshipping God. And that speaks to me of something. It says, just simply says, God is too great, our Lord Jesus is too great uh, to be satisfied by anyone. It needs the worship of all. Then you get pure worship, real worship. Well, um, I think we will have to just move on. And then again, you know, it's very interesting that in the book, uh, in the Psalter, in the book of Psalms, we discover that worship is connected with uh, a whole lot of um, words or places. For instance, they all mean the same thing. Zion, Jerusalem, the temple, the tabernacle, the dwelling place of God, the house of God, the habitation of God, or the sanctuary, or the holy hill, or the mountain of, of the Lord. Now, all these um, uh, w terms, they uh, actually reveal different aspects of one thing. But they all speak of, of one place. And do you know that I went through this morning and I counted all the different times that these words have occurred. Don't worry, I didn't go right through the Psalter Canon. I, I did it with a concordance. Um, but I discovered some very interesting facts. I discovered that, 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 you're, that the Psalms are actually tied to these places. I always knew that, but I wanted the evidence for it to really discover whether it was so. Um, one has an intuition about some things, but one must also have solid evidence, otherwise our intuition is just soulish. Uh, well, now we discover that, that worship is tied to these places. Now, just look at a few instances. Look at Psalm 5. Psalm 5, verse 7. But as for me, chapter five, um, Psalm 5, verse 7, But as for me, in the abundance of thy loving kindness will I come into thy house. In thy fear will I worship toward thy holy temple. I will come into thy house. I will worship toward thy holy temple. Now, another instance of, of these many. Psalm 9 and verse 14. That I may show forth all thy praise. In the gates of the daughter of Zion I will rejoice in my salvation. Now, what does the psalmist mean? Can't you rejoice outside the gates of Zion? Well, many Christians think you can. But what is the psalmist getting at? Why does he always say, why does he say, and by the way, this is only two, two, I've done a few more, but uh, 
really, we could stay here to breakfast time, just looking at the references on this. Why does the, the, the psalmist, psalmist always say this about um, rejoicing inside, on a certain hill, toward a certain hill, toward a certain building, or inside its gate? Do you know that the psalmist says that it seems more happy to him than heaven itself just to be inside the courts of the Lord? There's hardly a mention of the word heaven in the whole Psalter. And yet to the psalmist, the courts of the Lord are far more, far more to him than heaven. And we might almost say that the courts of the Lord are heaven to him. He yearns for the courts of the Lord. He longs to be inside the courts of the Lord. When he's inside the courts of the Lord, he says, now I'm in the right place to praise the Lord. It's just as if he's saying to himself, I can't praise the Lord anywhere else. It's no good. In fact, some of them wrote a psalm when they were in Babylon. They said they hung up their, they hung up their, their, um, their harps on the willows. They said, What's the good of singing here? They want us to sing. But this is no good us singing here in a foreign land. We must get back to Jerusalem. We must get back into those courts, that's the right place to sing. Now isn't that interesting? Then again, if you look at Psalm 48, we have another uh, example of this. Psalm 48, verse 1. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God, in his holy mountain. He's greatly to be praised in the city of our God. What about all the other cities? in the Promised Land. There's Bethlehem, and there's Hebron, and there's Mamre, and there's... Well, I could think of a whole lot of others, and I can think of all kinds of uh, spiritual um, experiences, and blessings, and historical events that took place there. I can't understand that. Why is the Lord only so greatly to be praised inside of that certain place? And then again, you go on uh, to the other end of the Psalter, 135, Psalm 135, verses 1 and 2. Praise ye the Lord, praise ye the name of the Lord, praise him, O ye servants of the Lord, ye that stand in the house of the Lord, in the courts of the house of our God. And then 138, Psalm 138, verse 2. I will worship toward thy holy temple and give thanks unto thy name for thy loving kindness and for thy truth. Well, it's all very interesting, but it's it just goes back to the same point. It is the essentially corporate nature of worship. That's all. The essentially corporate nature of worship. The Lord said to Moses to tell the people that they were to be very careful when they went over into the land, that they didn't offer their offerings anywhere in the land, that they didn't praise him anywhere in the land. But he said, there is a certain place which I will choose and cause my name to dwell there. There you shall come, and there I will accept you. And later on, when Solomon was dedicating the house, he said, it doesn't matter if you fall into sin, it doesn't matter if you're exiled, it doesn't matter if, the, if there's a terrible judgment on the land, if you will only get on your knees, or if you will only turn toward the house. If you will lift up your hands and pray toward this place, the Lord will forgive, and the Lord will undo what has happened, and the Lord will gather you in again. You see? So we discover that worship is essentially, uh, uh, a it has, a, has a, an essentially corporate nature. 
Well, now, I'll leave that for one moment, and the last thing I want on this matter of the key, and I want then very simply just to move over that outline on the board, very simply, I might say. Um, I want you all to know one last thing that's been a great blessing to me. I don't know whether it will be a great blessing to everyone here, because I don't know whether everyone will agree. But it's been a great blessing to me, and that is this. I have noted the wide variety of method used, and I don't like the word method, but still it's there, the wide variety of method used to express worship. I am frankly amazed, uh, because I think that so many of us, uh, we have such terribly narrow and straightened ideas about this matter of worship. Well, you look at it. Look at the various poetic forms. Well, some of them. I mean, if we were to ask some of you to praise the Lord uh, in these ways, I think, well, I don't know what you'd all do. We know it belongs to the Old Covenant. But nevertheless, it's interesting, isn't it, that here there is a principle. Obviously, not everyone had the gift of being able to put express worship in this poetic form. But it's interesting that it has been expressed in such a poetic form and in such a variety of complex poetic form. Now you take these acrostics. Have you ever heard of anyone worshipping the Lord beginning with every letter of the alphabet? Today we would say, well, no, you couldn't worship the Lord like You just couldn't do it. Take Psalm 119. Someone would say, that's not worship. Take Psalm 37 or many of these other... Take Psalm 34, if you want to look at it, the one that we have already mentioned uh, this evening. That, way, that very wonderful psalm. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be uh, in my mouth. <clears throat> you see, that's an acrostic psalm. Every one of those lines begins with a, a new consecutive letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Now, now, isn't that interesting? Now, take the Mosaic Psalms. Now, some may say, now, this is really wrong. Now, you take these acrostics. Have you ever heard of anyone worshipping the Lord, beginning with every letter of the alphabet? Today, we would say, well, no, you couldn't worship the Lord like You just couldn't do it. Take Psalm 119. Someone would say, that's not worship. Take Psalm 37 or many of these other... Take Psalm 34, if you want to look at it, the one that we have already mentioned uh, this evening. That, way, that very wonderful psalm. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be uh, in my mouth. <clears throat> you see, that's an acrostic psalm. Every one of those lines begins with a, a, a new consecutive letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Now, now, isn't that interesting? Now, take the Mosaic Psalms. Now, some may say, now, this is really wrong. Uh, you know, I mean, to, to putting, it, putting it absolutely straightly and crudely, to, to literally pinch from all other kinds of sources, fragments, and then weave them together and express worship in that way just doesn't seem right. And some would be even more horrified when it comes to imitating someone else. And there are quite a number of psalms that are just the repetition of others. For instance, 
Uh, we've read a Mosaic Psalm this night, 144. But you look at 108, Psalm 108, verse 1 to 5. My heart is fixed, O God, I will sing. Yea, I will sing praises, even with my glory. Awake, psaltery, and harp. I myself will awake right early. Well, then we look at Psalm 57. Psalm 57, uh, 7 to 11. And we discover my heart is fixed, O God. My heart is fixed, I will sing. Yea, I will sing praises. Awake up, my glory. Awake, psaltery, and harp. I myself will awake right early. See, it's repeated again somewhere else in another connection. So you begin to discover that um, there's a very wide variety of methods used in worship. Do you know, it all, at least this is the thing it teaches me, it all goes to uh, show one thing, that when you get a heart that is absolutely in tune with the Lord, and has somehow been brought by the grace of God to the place where they have yielded themselves utterly to him. That worship can be expressed in a thousand ways, and it can all be of value to the Lord. You know, there are some people who say you mustn't play a piano uh, because it's not uh, spiritual or something else. You mustn't play a piano uh, in a time of worship, which I'll keep it out. Um, there are others that will say, you mustn't do this, you mustn't do that. There are others that will try to uh, tie us right down to certain, well, a certain kind of, of praise and worship. But you know, it's so silly. Worship is something which, when a person's worshipping the Lord, it seems that almost anything and everything will be taken up to express that worship. Anything, almost anything. It's wonderful, really, isn't it? Uh, to recognize that. I sometimes think that in our times of audible praise, if only people would realize that they can't really praise, that they can't find words, they read a, a, a verse, a standard of a hymn that's right in their heart. It can be as living as anything else. Some people seem to think that's dead. I don't. When, it, when a person's too nervous to be able to do anything else, you know, that's a contribution. And because of the spirit of worship behind it, the thing lives. It's a real contribution. Someone else can't do anything else, but they can read something in the Word uh, that, that just expresses worship. So it's not something else, but it expresses worship, you see. And it puts into words what they would like to say, but they can't. And so they express themselves in that way. Other people can express themselves more originally. But you see, here you've got it. Evidently there was someone who felt they just couldn't, uh, couldn't put down to black and white what they felt. So they took a little bit from David here, another bit from... David some there, another bit there, and they began to build up something that expressed their feelings. Remarkable, isn't it? But you see, oh, the muddled ideas we've all got about worship. Uh, we really have got some muddled ideas about worship. And it's very tragic, because so often you discover that if the enemy can't keep us on, a, on an even keel, spiritually, on a, on a, in a balanced way, then, you see, people get over to this awful kind of stereotyped, rigid spirituality, which is not spirituality. 
and then this is wrong, and that's wrong, and the other's wrong, and you've got to do it this way, and you must use these words, and you oh, and, and worship dies in such an atmosphere. So we have to learn, you see, a very simple lesson, uh, that it's, uh, it's a spirit, really, uh, that's perhaps it. You see, another thing it taught me was this, I have no doubt that some of the psalms are the result of sudden, spontaneous inspiration. But I have also no doubt whatsoever that other psalms uh, were the result of meticulous, deliberate thought. And I believe there are times when we can worship the Lord. It doesn't, you know, some people take a time of open worship. Take a time of uh, when, we're, when we're expressing our worship by word. The life is the important thing, but my word... If there's something in the life, there should be something through the lips. Uh, now then, what happens then when we come to this question of the lips? Well, you know, it's, uh, it would be a tremendous thing uh, if some people, instead of coming and sitting down with an empty head, and sort of waiting for something to come in, that they could suddenly uh, put out. But that's what some people do. In fact, it's, it's actually considered to be spiritual and right to come and sit down, clear your mind out of anything, become a complete vacuum, and wait for something to come into your head of sudden inspiration. Then you get up and you say it. I have no doubt at times that that might be the way of the Lord, and that that may be right. But I'm also a, a convinced, as thoroughly convinced the other way, that there are times when someone can have been thinking about something backwards and forwards and backwards and forwards, they've deliberated on it, they've thought about it, and at last it comes out into the light of day, and it's something very precious. I don't know why people have always seemed to think that when it comes to any ministry like this, um, you've got to, as some people, I must be very careful, but I know some places uh, that I have been uh, in different parts of the continent and in England, where I've seen this kind of thing at work. There's one group I know of where they believe that you must never prepare anything. And I went with a dear brother to a meeting there. And I was amazed. Do you know what they did? They had to go up. The Bible was closed. They opened it. They put the finger down. They took the first thing. Their poison is like the poison of a serpent. And then they had to give a word on that. And those, no, you may, you think that's funny, but many people believe that that's, that's how you, how you should do it. And you know, always the same thing happened. All the people who went degenerated, first they tried to explain away that their poison was like the poison, poison of asp, and then it always went back to 20 years ago, I um, was saved in this way. And afterwards, I said to the dear brother, who was with me, I had some experience of that movement before. I said to him, now, do they always, he said, yes. He said, I could almost tell you what that brother's going to say. I can tell him. It doesn't matter where they put their finger in the Bible. They'll say more or less the same thing in the end. Now, you know, we've had a lot of experience. Well, I say a lot. We've had very little experience, really. But we've had a little experience in one way. Sometimes we've stood up on this platform and a, a few uh, moments before I have not known what we've to say and all we've known, we've prayed about it and we're all empty. We just don't know what the way of the Lord is. And then he's come forward. And he's come forward in this wonderful way. At times they've been marked by singular blessings. And there have been other times when somebody's been on one's heart for weeks 
weeks and weeks in which it's turned over backwards and forwards, churned over and over and over and over, until at last you just don't say, I can't say it, I can't say it. No, I can't say it yet, until all of a sudden it comes a point when out it comes, it, means it comes out into the open. Now, you see, you see, all these ideas of spirituality and spiritual ministry and spiritual worship and so on, we must get rid of them. They're erroneous. We mustn't just come into meetings with our heads empty and wait for something to suddenly burst in upon us. Maybe. But you know, the Lord would have us uh, be those that know something of a background, of a history in, in the back. Let me tell you something else. Some people think, of course, remember with Mr. Spurgeon, he never ever spoke from anything that had been deliberately and marvelously worked out. He always spoke from his heart. And because of that, many of the students in the early days, when he first started to gather students around him, they began to do the same. Of course, uh, the result was terrible. <laughs> Mr. Spurgeon uh, was wonderful, but all the students, they were terrible. And they were just getting into hopelessness. And in the end, one went to Mr. Spurgeon and spoke to him, and, and they all poured out their hearts to him. And they came out, well, they had thought that seeing Mr. Spurgeon go up onto that platform, speaking, they thought, well, now the Spirit of the Lord's upon him. Now, we must do that. So they tried to do it, and of course the Spirit of the Lord wasn't upon them. Now, why wasn't the Spirit of the Lord upon them? Well, Mr. Spurgeon said a very simple thing. He said, you see, to speak suddenly, in a spontaneous way, needs far more study and consistent study and understanding of the word than preparing for a given time. Far more. And when people don't study the word and don't make it a systematic habit to study the word, then you get poor ministry. You see? And many people are all waiting for the Holy Spirit to suddenly come upon them, like sort of wind into, into sails and sort of carry them forward. And suddenly a ministry will develop and, and everyone will just It doesn't happen. It doesn't happen. Now, you, you don't put your trust in study, and you don't put your trust in knowledge. But you see, sometimes, and even I, in my little experience of knowledge, <coughs> I've studied something along a long line and thought, well, now, my, this is going to be, this is really wonderful. This is going to be greatly used for the Lord. And then, to my horror, it's never been used. I know of some things I've studied very carefully that have never been used to this day. <coughs> and other things that one has not gone into so thoroughly have been taken up from the Spirit. But the point that I think we could make is this, that if we are not prepared to really get down to things thoroughly and systematically, then we cannot expect the Holy Spirit to take us up suddenly. That is the lazy and it's under the guise of spirituality. It doesn't happen. Oh, well, that's just something that comes from this, this whole question uh, here. Well, the key to the Psalter is worship. Very simply, this outline. Um, we have already said that the Psalter has a five-fold division. On the whole, the Psalms have been grouped together according to affinity although some collections have been left intact within uh, the Psalter. So, although we can, uh, contrary to common 
thought. The Psalms have a theme, uh, a developing theme, right the way through. Um, but you can't take every psalm along that line because, for instance, take the Psalms of Degrees. There are 15 psalms grouped together. They have a wide variety of subjects, although a common theme. And we find them within the bigger theme of the Psalter. Then you have a group of psalms of Asaph, and you have a group of psalms of sons of Korah all together, you see. These collections have been left intact within the Psalter. Um, nevertheless, there is uh, a theme that runs through. Now, Psalm 1 and 2 are an introduction. They are introductory. You notice that both of them have no author. They are introductory to the whole Psalter. Psalm 146, 47, 48, 49, and 50 are the conclusion, the concluding doxology of the whole Psalter. Psalm 146 begins with Hallelujah, and Psalm 150 ends with Hallelujah. They are five-fold, uh, as the rabbi said, one for every book. The last great five-fold concluding doxology of the Psalter. So you see, the Psalter has been built on a pattern in some ways. Um, it's interesting to note that every single one of the books uh, ends with a doxology. The last verse of Psalm 41, the last verse of Psalm 72, the last verse of Psalm 89, the last verse of Psalm 106 is a doxology. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, uh, usually from everlasting unto everlasting. Amen and amen. It's a doxology that ends each book. So now let's just for one moment look at this. We find Psalm 1 and 2 are an introduction. Then we have the main body of the Psalter. Books 1, Book 2, Book 3, Book 4, and Book 5. And then the conclusion is the last five Psalms. Now, uh, what do we find? We find some very, very interesting things. You look at Psalm 1. Psalm 1 is an intensely personal psalm, nothing to do with the corporate at all. What, is it, what does it deal with? It deals with the um, the righteous and the unrighteous, or shall we put it this way, the kind of character that the Lord needs personally in each one of us. Obedience and disobedience leading to character. Obedience to the character of Christ. Disobedience to our own character. Expressed. If you read Psalm 1, you will find it's basic, absolutely basic, to the whole of the Psalter. On the one side, this is what the man who follows God is like. And on the other, this is the kind of man who turns away from the Lord. Now, Psalm 2 is entirely different. It is linked with Psalm 1. Psalm 2 is in a different atmosphere altogether. It's no longer um, personal. It's corporate. And the whole Psalm 2 is to do with the lordship of Christ and the inheritance of Christ. And we discover that a tremendous conflict is raging over the lordship and the inheritance of God's Christ. Um, we see that the, the, the uh, central point of the conflict is this. I have set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. That's the central point of the conflict. 
So now we discover the Lord has laid a basis for the whole Psalter. Righteousness. And then he moves on to show that those who are made righteous under the Lordship of his Christ are the inheritance of Christ. Now, right over the whole five books of the Psalter and at the end. And what do you find in the last five Psalms? Oh, if only we had time to go through every one of them slowly. You find all the constituents of Psalm 1 and 2 are gathered up. And you find that everywhere a, a, an innumerable redeemed multitude are being gathered in. And in the end it begins with praise the Lord. Okay? The Lord is king. <coughs> and look what he's done. And then he says the Lord looses the prisoner. The Lord lifteth up this one. The Lord has done this. The Lord has done that. Praise ye the Lord. Hallelujah. And then on to the next psalm. And it begins to uncover. If you look through those, those psalms, you discover that everything is, is besought to praise the Lord. You see, um, Jerusalem is restored. And so um, the psalmist says, come Jerusalem, praise the Lord. Let Jerusalem praise the Lord. And then you go on and you find the whole creation is told, praise the Lord. The floods, the fields, the trees, everything's asked to praise the Lord. And then the people of God are the sort to praise the Lord. And finally, in that funny little psalm, a very wonderful little psalm, but I was used to find it an amusing little psalm, 150, where all the different musical instruments are asked to praise the Lord. All of them come together into one great concert. Now, it's not so funny as we might seem, because, you see, the whole thing is a symphony. It's a concert. And really, that last psalm is the summary of everything else. It's a redeemed universe. Every single thing in its right place. And the last word is, let everything that hath breath praise the Lord. Now, that's the end of the Psalter. And therefore, you see, the Psalter in itself is a little Bible. It begins with the tree of life and another kind. It begins with, with someone taking hold of something and he becomes like a tree planted by waters. A kind of man. A kind of man. The tree, li tree of life typifies. He becomes that kind of man. And then immediately, he becomes, under the Lordship of Christ, the inheritance of God. See? And then you see the whole Psalter spread out here on the board. And the end is glory. Everything in the end, because of this kind of man, is gradually and wonderfully gathered into the salvation of God. We call it the restitution of all things. I often wonder exactly what it means. The restitution of all things. Not anything left out, but everything restored to God under the headship of Christ. Well, you see, that's how the sort of finishes. And you see, in the end, the psalmist can't contain himself in the more hallelujahs. Although I don't like them usually when they're uh, those um, forced things. Well, here the psalmist is no, no longer forced. It's something real that's coming. He just can't contain it. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Hallelujah. The psalm begins with a hallelujah. It ends with a hallelujah. Everything's hallelujah. He can't contain himself any longer. Well, you see, the, it's a very, very wonderful, really, when you look at it in many ways. Um, 
I don't know really how best, whether it's best to leave it and look at this last part again uh, sometime, but really we should have looked through. There are so many references I would have liked to have given you uh, over these different books. But you see here very, very simply uh, the outline of this book. I put the name here because it is the most remarkable fact that each book is marked by one particular name of the Lord being used more, more obviously than any other. In the first is Jehovah, 275 times it's used in just those few Psalms. In this one it's Elohim, which just means God, the mighty God. Uh, and in book three, it's the two, God the Lord is used. And in book four it is Jehovah again. And in book five it is Jehovah again. But you see that book one and book five correspond. Uh, they come back to each other like a, like a circle. And oh, it comes back. Now we find in the Bible <coughs> that the Lord is dwelling in Zion. And we discover that our calling is to be the dwelling of God. Now, all the Psalms of the first book are very personal, intensely personal, but everywhere you look in the book, you will discover that the Lord is dwelling in Zion. And then you discover a very wonderful little cry comes out of the psalmist's heart. It's repeated again and again, but we haven't time to look at all the references. Um, it is this, how can we come into the hill of the Lord? How can I ascend into the holy place of the Lord? This cry, it's, strangely enough, it's not found so much elsewhere in the Psalter. It's found mostly in this book one. Now, you see, it's interesting. The Lord always speaks of himself in this book one as being in Zion or on the holy. I have set my king, you see. That's the key note. He's there. And it's as if he's saying now, this is the meaning of humanity. This is what you were created for. This is the meaning of everything. And then the response of humanity, as it were, is, but how? How can we become the dwelling place of God? Well, the answer is in the name that's used. The Lord begins the Psalter with the name that always signifies his grace and his redemption. Jehovah, the lover, the lover of humanity. The one who's full grace and understanding. He makes that the basis. How wonderful it is that the Lord doesn't begin with God. Isn't that so? He begins to unveil the thought of his being, of, of Zion being his dwelling place, of our becoming his home, on the basis of his redemption, and not on the basis of being God. On the basis of his being a God who loves us and desires us, and has found a way by which he can enter into covenant with us. It's very wonderful. Well, I wish we could look at all the messages, but we can't. If anyone wants them, I'll give them to you. Book two is characterized by the vision of Zion, the pilgrimage to Zion, and the conflict over Zion. Now, all these psalms are filled with these three things. Vision. Everywhere it's vision. But this time it's vision of Zion as the dwelling place of God. He reveals it. And everywhere the psalmist speaks of seeing it. Oh, he says the elevation of it. This is what God wants. 
this is where I can find God. This is where God will find me. It's, a, it's revealed to him. It's not just the fact that God is there. And how can I become it? But now he sees it. You see? And everywhere he's gripped by what he sees. And you get this lo- those lovely longings. Oh, that I might enter into the courts of the Lord. Oh, that I might appear before God. Tremendous longings now uh, to, to after. And a pilgrimage. Everywhere there's a pilgrimage to the holy hill. Well, and also we find there's a terrible Everywhere in this book, there's a terrible conflict. In book three, we discover <clears throat> that now it is God the Lord, whereas in book two, we discover God now reveals himself as God the Almighty, majestic, glorious, all-powerful, able to reveal things, able to lead his people, able to protect them in conflict. He is the Almighty God. God himself. Well, that's a tremendous thing to see. And you see, in this connection, we might see the Lord as, the, as our Redeemer, but we must also understand that the church was not something that just came by way of redemption. It was always in the thought of God. Before ever there was a fall, the church was God's mind. Before ever he, he revealed himself as Jehovah, as God Almighty, he desired a habitation amongst men. And then again we discover that in th- the third book, the key to it, the, it, all the psalms here are summed up in the sanctuary of God in Zion. And this little phrase occurs again and again. Then I went into the sanctuary and I saw. Saw everywhere. It doesn't matter what it is, he sees. But he only sees when he goes in. Uh, Psalm 84. You know, he just doesn't know what's happening in Psalm 84. He's on a pilgrimage and he says, oh, but then suddenly everything falls into place. He says, you know, I can see it. I can see it. And then he speaks of this. That he says, blessed is the man in whose heart are the highways to Zion. He begins to see now that the, this is the key. The Lord in his sanctuary is key. The sparrows found in the nest and the swallow. And they are, they are at home in the altar of God, in the house of God. He says they'll still be praising me, those who live in the house of God, they'll still be praising me. So you see, uh, he's discovered something which is very wonderful. He's discovered that the sanctuary, the Lord in his sanctuary, is the key to everything. In Psalm 87, he finds that everything is the key to the universe. He says one day when the Lord writes up the people, he'll say, that one was born there. That one was born there. That one was born there. It will be the key to the universe, the key to humanity itself. For everyone who's been born in Zion belongs to a different kind of man. Well, he sees everything. He sees the conflict and everything. He says at one time, he said, I looked at the wicked and they seemed to prosper. I looked at the righteous and they seemed to be very dejected and defeated. And he said, I just didn't understand it. And then he said, I went into the sanctuary of the Lord. Then understood I. So you see, it's the sanctuary of the law that was the key to everything. And I think that's also something to be noted. Then we find another step forward is taken in the fourth book, Psalm 90 to 106, only 16 psalms, but you know, very wonderful. They all begin with the Lord reigns. And here we find that the Lord, again, 
it's the name of Jehovah is used more than the, uh, than the other titles. And we find that he is revealed as the king of kings in Zion. He's nowhere else. Now don't get it in your heads that he's going to reign from anywhere else. His throne is in Zion. It's clearly revealed. Every one of those psalms takes it up in one way or another. The Lord in Zion reigning everywhere, over everything, king of kings to the end. And then another wonderful thought comes in. For the first time you continually get a reiterated undercurrent. And this is it. Let all nations come. Let all peoples come. Let everyone come to the Lord, because he is king. They shall all come. Kings will bow down before him, and so forth, so on and so forth. What is the thought there? It is this. When the Lord comes to his rest in Zion, truly, then you begin to discover that those who are his dwelling place become his means of final vindication. You know, man is the apex of God's work. And it was man that Satan destroyed. Not the natural creation, not anything else. He struck at man. And therefore, the vindication of God before all those unseen powers rests on a redeemed man that will get to where God intended him to get. You see, Satan has lifted up his hand against God. And he said, you will, I will. Now there's a conflict that you and I are only pawns in, in a sense. It's going on in the unseen. Satan says, you will not. God says, I will. God's great will, I will, according to the counsel of his own will. And Satan's, I will, be like the most high. And in between, a humanity. And it's the battlefield of tremendous, tremendous forces and powers. Now you see... Uh, the vindication of God rests on a new man. Humanity redeemed. A humanity redeemed. Brought into union with Christ. That's why these psalms speak of the Lord as King. He is in Zion. That's his vindication. And from there he will reign to the ends of the earth. He will be admired at in all them that believe. And so lastly... We come to the last book, and the last book deals with final redemption as Zion, the place of glory, and the place of praise, the eternal place of glory and praise, and the eternal rest of God. The last book actually sums up all the others. It goes back over them all, it brings all the different notes in again, and it begins to reveal how in the end the Lord is the the Redeemer of everything. All things. And so closes the whole of the Psalter of one great note of praise. What God has set out to get, in the end, he has. And the final word is, let everything that hath breath praise the Lord. As if the psalmist saw then that the whole creation was in pain, travelling together, groaning under some terrible restriction and limitation. And then suddenly he sees that the release is going to come, 
And then everything bursts into new life. And he speaks of trees clapping their hands and fields shouting aloud for joy. Everything being released into a new realm and sphere of life and activity. Well, <clears throat> that's the Psalter. I'm sorry we couldn't look at all those references because they would have given you the actual evidence for what I have said about Zion here. But you would have discovered, I'm sure, as I have, how utterly amazing it is that everything in the Psalter is tied down to the Lord himself first <coughs> and then to Zion as his dwelling place. That's where worship, that's what worship, the meaning of worship, is first in knowing the Lord and secondly in knowing the Lord in Zion, coming to know him within the courts of his house. What is the message of the Psalter? It is a very, very wonderful, it's a vital one. Right back over it all. Doesn't matter what experience you're in, what condition you're in, however you feel. Worship is not just being on top. Worship is firstly a character produced by the Holy Spirit, beaten out a relationship to the Lord, an attitude to the Lord, beaten out in everyday experience, an experience that is common to all humanity and in sometimes singular to us. That's how it's beaten out. That's worship. Then comes the look. Then comes expression. We don't only understand the message of the, of the Psalter. We would go away new people. We would go away transformed people. Because it's not just the theology. It's not just doctrine. It's not just fantasy. This goes right down to your life and my life, and in the shop, in the factory, in the school, in the home, amongst ourselves, when we're together, in every kind of experience. It doesn't matter where it is. I found places the psalmist speaks, and so the Lord gives even his beloved sleep. He says, you, he makes his bed, he makes my bed for me. As if even there he felt there could be an attitude of worship. You can sleep and worship the Lord. It's as if he felt that worship was something that we are rather than what we do. And, uh, oh, if we could understand that it would transform our lives because, you know, many of us are giving the Lord a lot. We might be going the way of the Lord in many directions and yet, you know, the one thing the Lord from eternity to eternity has always wanted is the worship of our hearts. Uh, the rest doesn't mean anything really to him unless he gets that. And that begins with all of us presenting our bodies and living sacrifice to him. When we abandon ourselves and the right over ourselves and hand ourselves utterly over to the Lord, then we enter into the meaning of worship and then by the grace of God we enter not only into our rest but God enters into his rest. Now, Lord, we pray thee to bless all this to us. Thou knowest, O Lord, how much we need thee. And we pray thee above everything else, Lord, thou wilt not allow all that we have heard in these past weeks upon this vital part of thy word to be lost in any way. But, Lord, even if we don't understand it now, oh, by thy Spirit, write it indelibly in our hearts and spirits to be brought to us again at some later date when we shall understand 
Lord, hear us and let all this become our living experience. We ask it in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ.